I've been thinking a lot about waiting uh, in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, uh, I entitle it, Waiting in a Dangerous World. And I think about waiting, and I was thinking about the kids in the midst of the service, and I remember a time that was hard for me to wait when I was younger. I'm thinking about age five, about age six, probably longer than that, waiting for my birthday to come. Well, why would a kid wait for their birthday to come? Because you're the center of everything, and there's cake, and there's presents, and there's frosting on the cake, and it's full of sugar. What's not to like, right? And, and then, well, my birthday was in late, is in late August, and so not too long after that, Christmas comes. What's not to like? Again, there's all kinds of wonderful stuff, but there's this tree right in the middle of the living room, and there's presents under the tree, and some of them are for me. That's a wonderful thing, Christmas time, right? But then after Christmas comes January and February, March, and I grew up up north of Seattle, so yes, it was rain and rain and rain and rain, and it's a long time till the next birthday. It's a long, long time when you're six years old to Christmas, and you're waiting, and it's so long. And um, my parents showed me a year calendar and the seasons, and they, they talked about, okay, these things are coming along the way, and there's going to be Valentine's Day, and there's Easter, and we sprinkle in some other holidays, and the 4th of July comes, and there's fireworks, and things that can get a kid excited along the way, and you can see time is progressing through, so there's hope. We're going to get through this long, long year, and birthday will come again. Christmas will come again. Because when you're a kid, a few years old, it's, it's, it's hard to wait that long. Later on, you get a little older, right? It's like, where did these birthdays come from? How did, what, I got another one already? Where did that come from? How did that sneak up on me, right? Have, have, have any of you just canceled birthdays now? You just don't have birthdays anymore? It's like, those things wear you out. They come so fast now. So, so they, they will come faster in years ahead. But uh, in the meantime, there's a waiting there's a waiting for that which we want to see. And there's a parallel there of the waiting of that which a kid wants to see in Christmas because Christmas is about God's promise fulfilled, what the world waited for, and he came. And he's coming again, and we wait for it. And Daniel chapter 8 is about that waiting. We, we look around us today, Look at what's happening in Portland downtown. And just when you think, well, it, it can't get much worse than this, and then they move the riots from the middle of the night when not many, many other people are there to right in the middle of the day. And there's big fights and clashes yesterday downtown in the middle of the day, and the police basically saying, we don't have the resources to do anything about this. We're just hands off. If these two groups want to get together and fight each other, we just, I guess we're going to let them. And you think, this is like day 87 of this mess. How long can this go on, right? If I told you a year ago that next year there's going to be riots in Portland, they're going to go on, they're going to go on a bunch of days. In fact, they're going to go on for three months. And the authorities, they're going to attack not just businesses and do major looting and millions of dollars of damage, but in fact they're going to attack police stations night after night. They're going to attack not only police stations, but federal courthouses night after night. And the authorities are really not going to stop it. It's going to go on for months. Would you have believed it? Say, that's crazy. What are you talking about? Something like that isn't going to happen. That's too weird. 
And yet here we are. And, and to, to have the unexpected described ahead of time and then play out before you. Certainly, if I could have done that, if I would have known that, you'd be listening more carefully to what else I had to say. You'd be asking me about my stock market predictions, right? You ever seen those headlines? The man who predicted this or that, you know, now says, and you're supposed to click on it. Well, first of all, don't click on it. It's called clickbait. But uh, if somebody was right then, well, I better pay attention to what else they say, okay? Well, something like that is going on in Daniel chapter 8. It's coming to the end of the time that Israel will be in Babylon. In fact, in a few years, they're going to, by the next ruler of the world, Cyrus the Great, Israel is going to be sent back to Jerusalem from Babylon, told, go build your temple, pray for me there. And yet, the trouble is not over. The kingdom has not yet come. And God will still not allow them to be content and settled and think that everything's fine when we're not home yet. So Daniel chapter 8 gives a very specific prediction, such a, a detailed prediction that you wouldn't expect it. In fact, a lot of people have thought Daniel couldn't have been written ahead of these events. They're too specific. And when it moves from here to chapter 11, it gets even harder to believe. But God tells his people ahead of time what is going to happen so when it happens, they can have confidence in God and in his word that God is sovereign over history. His word is true and it can be counted on. God is looking ahead and preparing his people for the trouble that is coming and for them to continue to hold fast and to continue to be light in the midst of darkness even when the trouble comes. So Daniel's not just an exciting, fun kind of little, oh, this is, this is fun prophecy and we're going to match up events. It's interesting, at the end of this chapter 8, Daniel's going to say, I don't really understand most of this. I don't really understand most of what I've been shown. But God's people along the way are going to recognize it when it happens And in the midst of very difficult times, they're going to know God said this in advance. God is sovereign. God knows what's happening. What else God has said in advance, the promises he has made for us concerning his coming in his kingdom are also going to be realized. So, in the meantime... In Daniel chapter 8, we find that like Daniel's people, we are waiting in a dangerous world. We're going to talk about this prophecy a little bit, identify some of the players, and then we're going to, there's some things that we can learn or should learn from this that apply to us directly long after these initial uh, things have been fulfilled. So, I want to read Daniel chapter 8. And we're just going to start, we're going to go a piece at a time. I want to start in the first four verses. Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, remember Belshazzar is important for two reasons. First of all, it tells you that Babylon is still the world empire. We are not in the Persian empire yet, and yet you could see them coming. You could see the rise start. But um, that's about where we are in the flow of history. But also, Belshazzar was unknown later. He was canceled out of history. Nobody remembered him even a hundred years later. The historians that were writing did not remember Belshazzar even had a time as the king of Babylon. They only mentioned his father who reigned with him at the time. He's the forgotten sort of assistant that 
basically disappears off of history. So if Daniel's written much later than these events happened, he couldn't have included Belshazzar in the story. So all of a sudden, the mention of Belshazzar in, in verse 1 becomes really important that this happened at the time, this was recorded at the time long before most of the events happened. A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the provinces of Elam. Now, Susa is the capital of Persia. That's where Artaxerxes' palace is going to be. That's where Nehemiah is going to be. Esther is going to be queen there. Those events are going to play out in Persia at Susa. And I saw in the vision, I was at the Ula Canal, which is just right there at the citadel, at this palace headquarters of the Persian Empire, which is growing and emerging. I raised my eyes and I saw, and behold, a ram. The ram was standing on the bank of the canal, and it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. And no beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now, who is the ram? Well, if you, if you, you didn't recognize it at that day yet, Daniel's going to be told who the ram is. In verse 20, it is explained that the ram that you saw from the two horns, these, or with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So one of the horns comes up first, the other one comes up later, and the later horn becomes the bigger horn. You had the kingdom of the Medes and then the Persians. The Persians came up later behind the Medes, but the Persians overtook so that it became known as the Persian Empire rather than the empire of the Medes and the Persians. And so this ram is in the east from Babylon, and it's pushing already northward and southward and westward. It's threatening Babylon already. Daniel would have recognized, people around Daniel would have recognized, that sounds like those guys over in Persia. And then the vision goes on. As I was considering this, behold, there was a male goat. The male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. This goat is flying. Doesn't have wings, but he's moving fast. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram. And he was enraged against him. And he struck the ram and he broke his two horns. He, he, he smashed him and he mashed him. The ram had no power to stand before him. Cast him to the ground and he danced upon him there. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there rose up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heaven. Now, Daniel would not have known who is this goat from the west that comes flying across the landscape and smashes and mashes the Persian ram. And he's told in verse 21, the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king of this Greece, Greece empire. As for the horn that was broken, in, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power, not with his strength. So the mystery of the goat is revealed. This is Alexander the goat. You heard it another way, but 
That's what it says here. This is Alexander the goat. So Alexander the goat is going to rise, and Alexander the goat is going to lead an empire of Greece, and the same word was used for Greece and Macedonia at that time. So Alexander actually led a Macedonian empire. And um, so Alexander comes flying across, and he is enraged. The Greek, the Greek peoples are enraged against how Persia has betrayed and has oppressed the Greek city colonies, especially those in modern-day Turkey now, Asia Minor then. And they feel that they were betrayed and stabbed in the back and oppressed and taken advantage of, and they are getting their revenge. And, uh, but at this time, Daniel and others could see Persia rising but nobody would have seen anything coming out of Greece. Greece is no kind of possible future potential world power at this time. Nobody would have seen that coming. Greece was a collection of city-states that fought more among themselves than against anybody else. They, they established new colonies by picking one out of every ten people in their own city because they didn't have the resources to provide for their own, so they picked one in ten and sent them away. Not to expand and to take new territory, but because they couldn't provide for their own where they were. So Greece was not a power of any stretch of the imagination at that time. Persia, on the other hand, was huge. Babylon, founded by, by Nebuchadnezzar's father and especially by Nebuchadnezzar himself, Babylon existed as a new empire for about 65 years. Persia for 200 years following. 200 years. And then when Alexander the goat comes along, flying across the terrain west to east, through Babylon and on into Persia, he conquers all of it in three short years. And the historians say, wow. But then in the midst of that, Alexander the goat is 32 years old. And he dies. There's various reasons uh, given about how, uh, the surrounding his death. But he dies. He dies unexpectedly. And uh, his kingdom, there's no heir yet. His son has not yet been born. So in the ensuing years, his son is put up as kind of a puppet, the child, on the, as, as a ruler. But the power is, is grabbed hold of by four of his generals in four different directions. In the, in the west, in the north, in the south, down in Egypt. And in the east, there in Syria and Mesopotamia or into Babylon. And out of that fourth area, that's the division of the four horns, and out of the fourth there rises a series of kings, and there's one called the little horn, and the story turns now to him. This one little horn that arises out of one of the four that had divided up Alexander's empire. Out of one of them, in verse 9, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land, Israel, Jerusalem. And it grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and it trampled on them. And it became great, even as great of the, as the prince of the host. So there is a prophetic dimension to this. There's a spiritual dimension to this. That the host of the Lord, the host of the prince, are normally considered to be the, the, the angels in heaven. And it's a vast multitude. And it can be true of a multitude of God's people on earth. But there seems to be a spiritual, the stars of the heavens. There's a spiritual dimension to this as well of what's going on here with this little horn. 
He became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offerings were taken away from the prince of the host. That's why the prince, I'm pretty sure, represents the Lord here. And the place of his sanctuary, the Lord's sanctuary, the Lord's temple, was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it. He kills many. Together with the regular burnt offering, which Antiochus Epiphanes, the historic king in this series, this king arises out of one of those four corners of, of Alexander's former empire. This one king finally emerges toward the end of it, just before Rome comes up. And he, and he in one of his invasions down into Egypt to take more for himself, he's turned back, not by his... Um, uh, his um, other kind of competition down there in Egypt, but the Romans intervene. And the Romans turn him back, and he's furious, but he can't do anything about it. And so on his way back, he's coming back through Israel, and he stops off at Jerusalem. He said, if I can't take that, I'll take this. And he, and he oppresses further. He's already started oppression in, in Israel and Jerusalem, but, he, but he, he ramps it up, and he builds a fortress there to enforce his rule, and he, he causes the, the burnt offerings under the Mosaic law to cease. He causes, he forces the priest to offer a swine offering, an unclean offering, on the altar in Jerusalem, and his soldiers then go on a circuit from town to town to village to village, forcing everybody across the countryside to participate in these unclean and pagan sacrifices which are a complete repudiation of their practice of their faith in the Lord. So he has cast God's truth to the ground and is trampling upon it and imposing this Greek religion upon Israel. Uh, out of his influence, that's where when you read in the Gospels, you read about the Hellenists, which are the Greek-oriented uh, people in Israel in the New Testament. The Hellenists were the leftovers, the remnants, out of Antiochus's influence. Well, Antiochus isn't done yet. He had named himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means manifest one or the manifestation. Antiochus considered himself the manifestation of God on the earth, specifically the great Greek god, so-called Zeus. So Antiochus makes a statue. It's a statue of Zeus, but surprisingly, Zeus looks exactly like Antiochus. Because Antiochus is the manifestation of God on the earth. This sounds like a, a false antichrist kind of a, a version of the incarnation, doesn't it? And he takes that statue and he sets that statue up in the temple in Jerusalem. And that's the final straw. The, the Maccabean rebellion, the Maccabean revolt uh, breaks out against this uh, oppression, against this abomination that makes the temple completely desolate and worthless and unclean to Israelites. He takes away the burnt offering in verse uh, 13, and the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And the angels are watching this, and one angel asks another angel, for how long is the vision concerning the loss of the, of the offerings and the transgression that makes desolate, the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled, for how long? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state again. 
So Antiochus Epiphanes stands himself up even against the prince of princes, even against the Lord of lords, declaring himself to be God in the flesh, that which is who Jesus himself is, and shows himself to be in the same land, in Israel, just about 200 years from this event. So Antichrist sees his opportunity, sees his moment, steps up early. Antiochus Epiphanes is the, is the best example in history that we've had of an Antichrist so far. But he wasn't the one. And, he, and he, he comes to his end. He comes to his end. He will be broken and yet not by human power. He has put his power is made great in verse 24, not by his own power, not by his own strength. And then it says a little further down in verse 25, and, and he shall rise up even against the prince of princes, the Lord of lords, and he shall be broken, but not by human hands. God himself is going to step in and say, enough is enough. And then finally in verse 26 of Daniel chapter 8, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. This is for Daniel's people in the future. This is not for them to be able to make predictions and to write books and say, this is what's going to happen in the future, folks. Get all excited about it. There's going to be a future time when people are going to need to turn back and open up Daniel's prophecy and make sense out of what is happening because it is going to be so horrific and they'll need to know that God knew about this in advance. God, it's going to feel like God has given up on earth. It's going to feel like God has given up on all of his promises, that it's all going to be trashed, that there's going to be nothing left, that no way can this be redeemed and brought, about, brought back around into the kingdom of God. How could this happen? How could God allow this in his own temple? And when they open up again this prophecy that was put on the shelf for a while, they'll see that God knew all along. God told us in advance, so when it happened and we recognized it and we saw it, we can know this, that God's word is true. God is sovereign over history. What God says can be counted on. What God says in Daniel chapter 11 can be counted on. That the kingdoms of this earth will rise and fall. They'll come and they'll go until God's own kingdom is established by his king and it will last forever. And God's king will come and God's king, the prince, the Lord Jesus, will come and establish his reign and he will give his kingdom to the saints. You and I who believe in Jesus and the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 will be realized. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the kingdom of God. They shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled. It will come. If you get nothing else out of Daniel chapter 8, get that. God's word can be counted on. His promises are sure. No matter how it looks in the midst of what you're going through in life right now, God's word is true. His promise is sure. It will reach his intended on and hang on. Because in this midst of this Maccabean revolt, when everything had been ruined and corrupted and destroyed, and now a ragtag band of revolutionaries are trying to put themselves against one of the most powerful kings of their day, 
and his armies and his fortresses, and the battle goes on, God says there is an end. There is the time when God himself says enough, and it's 2,300 days. And from in 171 B.C., to December 25th, December 25th, Christmas, what we now recognize as Christmas, in 164 B.C., at 2,300 days, Antiochus's armies have been defeated, the temple has been cleansed, and the festival of lights is created to commemorate it. That's where we get what you know today as Hanukkah. And isn't it interesting that we celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world, we celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th, which was the cleansing of the temple, the restoration of light in God's temple in Jerusalem. God's light has returned, the festival of lights, because Jesus himself is the light of God who has come into the world. So, what God had said, even to the 2,300 days, is realized in history, and we can know this, that God's word is true. God is sovereign over history. The angels themselves, did you notice that it's an angel in the midst of the vision as you read through the chapter? It's an angel of God who asks, how long can this go on? Now, we look at things going on around us in the world. You look at the horrors that are going on in the midst of humanity, and you say, how long could God allow this? There is a limit. There's been a limit through history all the way through, and there will be a, a, a limit in the future as well. God has set his limit, but even heaven grieves over the presence and longs for God's future. You see that? Even the angels of heaven, they're not sitting back. We are separate from this. We're up here in heaven. God, glad we're not down there. They look down there. And what's happening among that which God has created and among those whom God loves, among those whom that God even gave his own son for. And they say, how long? How long can this go on? And if that's the perspective of heaven, it ought to be ours. We ought to guard ourselves from a callousness of heart that gets so used to the trouble and trauma around us that we hardly care anymore. We're willing to wash our hands of it Keep it at arm's length and simply go about our own business. No, the things that occur around us in the brokenness of humanity, they grieve heaven. And they ought to grieve God's saints on earth as well. If Daniel, Daniel's vision is to be sealed up, if he, would, if he was to stand and to pro proclaim and to preach these things publicly at this time, people would have mocked him. What power from the West? Yeah, we got our eyes. First of all, they would have said, well, Babylon's not going anywhere. And it would. But they would, they, we got our eyes on those Persians out there to the East. Yeah, we get that. But, but to think of any danger coming from Greece? Are you serious? Have you looked out there? There is nothing there to be afraid of in any of the foreseeable future, but God can foresee what we cannot. So today, Peter tells us, people will mock you in terms of your hope in the promise of his coming. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? People have been saying, that, yeah, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, sure, when? Tell me, when has anything changed? They're going to say, Peter says, haven't things continued from the creation of the world, so-called, even until now? Nothing has changed. Everything's been the same. The world just moves along. There is no intervention from God. Oh, really? He said, they willingly forget 
Not that the science has convinced them otherwise. They willingly forget that God has already destroyed the world by a flood. They willingly forget that God has already intervened and sent his son right into the midst of humanity to live with us, to show himself to us, to die for us, and to conquer death itself. No, things have not continued from the beginning until now. God has intervened, and he will intervene. Daniel 8 reminds us that the question is not, will God? The question is, how long? How long? And that's why the church needs to pray as well. The church needs to pray as Paul prays, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. The church needs to pray as the book of Revelation closes with the plea, Lord, come quickly. Because the question is not will he, but when. How long? Meanwhile, the world is a dangerous place. The world is a dangerous neighborhood in which we live and serve God as his light in the midst of the world. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Jesus looks down the corridor of time as well. Jesus does a Daniel 8 kind of a thing in Matthew 24. Well, in John 16, also, he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. He prepares us for it. He tells us about it. There will be trouble. Don't ask, well, well God's not blessing me. I guess maybe God's, God doesn't care. Maybe God's not there at all. No, God, he, God told you. In the midst of bearing our trouble for us, he said, you will have tribulation in this world. But be encouraged. Take heart. I, Jesus said, have overcome the world. And he says that with the disciples in his last week. And they're fascinated by the temple. And he says, guys, don't look at the wrong stuff here. Don't get distracted by the flashy stuff. He says, there's going to come a time when not one of these stones are going to be upon another. And they said, well, what are the signs of your coming? What are the signs of the end of the age? And in Matthew 24, he gives them. I'm not going to detail it, but he says, as he looks ahead, he says, there's trouble coming. There will be wars and rumors of war. There will, be, there will be natural disasters and famines. There will be ethnic and religious persecution. There will be hatred of one to another. People will fall away and they will betray you to others. There will be false prophets who will lead people astray. There will be rampant lawlessness. Each one will do what is right in his own eyes. And because of that lawlessness, he says, the blood or the, the heart of many will grow cold and hard and callous and not care. And that, I think, is what we need to beware. There's a lot of influence around us out of the culture. Things that we even watch for entertainment that actually put on display the horrible condition of humanity around us, and we get used to it. And our hearts Hearts get hardened toward us. We're callous so that it, it, it rolls right off of us and it doesn't affect us. It doesn't cause us to grieve any longer. We're to prepare spiritually for the difficulties that are coming toward us. That's what, that's what Paul is telling the church in Daniel, or rather 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to slip over there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And 1 Thessalonians 2, it's a passage we might look at at some point in the future more detailed because Paul describes what was described about Antiochus and what will be described in Daniel chapter 11 about the coming Antichrist himself. And Paul picks up that theme in, in 
paints in a few more of the details, not just merely so we'll know something more about Antichrist and know about the future and we can write books about end times, but what do we do with that? He says, so then, brothers and sisters, in the midst of this, warning them what is coming, don't be fooled about the future. Brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to what you've been taught by us, whether by spoken word or by our letter. And now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through his grace, may God comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul encouraged us, how will we, how will we strengthen ourselves for, how will we strengthen ourselves spiritually for the trouble that is coming, for the stuff that we will live our faith out in the midst of? He says, hold fast to that which you've been given. Whether what you've been taught verbally, what you have been given in the letters, what you read in God's book, hold fast to God's word. That's where your strength is. Paul, when he leaves the Ephesian church for the last time, he won't be able to visit them again. He says, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all of those that God has set apart for himself. And Paul says here earlier in his ministry, commit yourself, trust yourself to the truth of God's word. God's word is truth. His promises will be realized. And commit yourself to every good work and word. We build spiritual muscle by committing ourselves to follow through with what our Lord has told us to do. That next step of obedience, when you respond in faith to that which God has shown you clearly in his word, this is what you should do. When you follow the leading of his spirit into it, you build spiritual muscle. And that strengthens you to withstand the the distraction and the fear and the trouble and the temptations that will come because you have exercised spiritual muscles of obedience to God in the midst of opposition. This is the time for training. Daniel chapter 8 closes on this note. Verse 27, I, Daniel, was overcome. I lay sick for many days. This literally seeing this horrible future made me sick. Then I rose and I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision. I was devastated. I did not understand it. Say, well, I don't understand. End time stuff, I don't really don't understand. You know, I don't really get all that stuff in the future. Isn't it fascinating? Daniel didn't either. That was not the point. The point was God knows the future. And along the way, as it happened, that's when God's people would realize, oh, this is exactly what God had said. God can be counted on. It's not that Daniel can be counted on. Daniel doesn't understand it yet either. It's not that Bob can be counted on, although I hope I am faithful to teach you God's word, but it's God's word that can be counted on. That's what we learned from Daniel here. And so Daniel rose and went about the king's business. He he got back to work. We have work to do in the midst of this world where God has set us. We have work to do. But can I borrow that line from Daniel? Can I borrow that line that we must be about the king's business. What has our king given us to do? What assignment have you been given? 
Well, I know it's going to fit into this. It's going to fit into this overarching assignment and mission that God, God has given his church, and that is to make disciples. That is to go to others around us. That is to bring them into God's family, and that is to build one another up as followers of Jesus. That's what God has given us to do. That is the king's business, to build one another up as followers of Jesus so we can be about the king's business of going to people around us, bringing others into God's family, and building them up as well. That's what we'll do from now until he comes. Like Daniel, we ought to be appalled at what goes on around us, but we ought to be confident in our God and thus about his business. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you know the future. Father, thank you that our times are not by chance, but they are fully in your hands. And Lord, just because you allow the mess of the present, it is not because you are disengaged, it is not because you are far away, it is not because you do not care. You cared enough to send your son right into the midst of it and there to die in our place. And yet, Father, there will be a time when you will say enough. There will be a time that will be how long? There will be a time when you will intervene and the Son of God will come and establish your kingdom forever. Oh, Lord, as we long for that day, strengthen us to live in this one. Lord, we are not there yet. We are not home yet. And while you have us here, would you be pleased to use us to a neighbor nearby? Would you so fill us with your hope that it overflows out of us to the people around us? Father, give us faith to believe your word, to trust your promise so that others around us can see that hope and ask us about it. We can share it with them, that they would know the joy and the hope in Jesus too. Lord, that is our prayer. Use us until you come for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.